Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We hope you've had a chance to check out our first three episodes. I know that we've already had some great content and have even been able to start answering a few of the questions that you, our listeners, have. And so we have introduced our new segment, The Mailbag. So, Phil, what's our question for today? Yeah, um, I'm already excited to see how this mailbag has uh, instigated some great conversations and has caused people to really just be asking questions, whether it's on Facebook or through emails or even just in conversations with me on phone calls or in person. And so, you know, this one uh, today actually comes from Dana. And uh, she has uh, asked us a question that I, that I really want you to kind of take the first crack at, uh, given your experience as a social worker and um, as an adoptive mom as well. Um, question is, thinking of the foster care system, is it actually better than some orphanages? Well, that is definitely a loaded question for sure. And I think the answer is yes and no. I think that when we visited our son's orphanage, could you look at it and say that it was um, better care than maybe he had been receiving? Yes. Um, I know he gained, I think, about nine pounds in 10 months. Uh, so that gives you an idea that he was um, he had shelter, he had uh, food, he had clothing. Um, it may have been girls clothing at times, but it was still more than he had had received. And so I, I know that. I do know that he also had um, inconsistent workers. He had inconsistent care as far as who was giving that care. So I think you have to look at it from an individual basis. I've also seen some atrocious orphanages. Um, I've seen some that are deplorable. And I've seen some um, some foster care families, some foster homes that we've all heard the stories. And so I think you have to step back and say, um, there's good and bad in both. Um, I do know that I think the church has to start engaging in foster care more and more in the U S. Um, I do know that we have uh, the opportunity to step in there and to provide a uh, loving, uh, caring, uh, secure homes for kids. And so I think the answer is yes and no. What about you, Phil? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I think that this question also raises an issue that we've talked a lot about on this show from the beginning of season one, which is really the need to define terms. And I think that foster care means something different in different countries around the world, to different under different laws, um, even state to state in the U.S. It looks different. There's different rules. There's different ways that kids are put into and get, uh, into foster care, the gatekeeping. All of that is, is critical to understand. And this same thing with orphanages. Orphanages can mean something from the worst institution in the world with a 150 to 1 ratio potentially of it with, you know, caregiver to child to a place that is a family, a true family based care with a mom and a dad raising, you know, five or six kids in a home uh, where they're they're treating it as a spiritual adoption. Um, as, as legal as it can, or, or as, as real of a family as it can be under that law. And so really we need to take into account, um, all of that, you know, into the, into answering a question like this. And I, I do think exactly what you said. There are some horrendous situations in foster care and there are some horrendous situations in orphanages. And like we've said before, just cause something, you know, just cause there's bad examples doesn't mean you throw the whole thing out. And so I think we really need to, um, define the terms, uh, really well when we're talking about this conversation and to make sure that we don't say, Oh, one is better than the other necessarily, because that's really how we start. I think that's when we go down these roads where we're having these very dogmatic statements that we lose, um, the forest for the trees. And I, and that's something even, um, I've had, like I said, I've had some conversations about the orphan question that we had last week, just the use of the term orphan. And, you know, that word has taken on so many different meanings in so many different contexts. Um, and in the same way, I think that foster care and orphanage and all of that just needs to be defined better, um, as we're doing this. But, uh, to say that, you know, is the, fo is, is the foster care system actually better than certain orphanages? Well, well, yeah, 
Um, it absolutely is. There's some phenomenal foster families and there's some phenomenal things that come out of foster care when done right. You know, we don't have the time to get into what that means today, but I know there's some phenomenal resources out there um, by, you know, Johnston Moore talked a lot about it. Josh Ship has talked about it on this show. And they've, they've also given us a lot of resources that I encourage you out there. If this is something that really strikes a chord with you, first of all, engage it with us. Love to hear some emails and feedback on it. But also, um, you know, go check out those resources and see what these guys who really are in the trees of this, are in the mix of this every day, really getting their hands dirty, are really thinking about these issues and will give you a lot of wisdom on it. I agree, Phil. I think when you... You have to remember that these are children and sometimes it's just what's the best alternative at the time. And like you said, that's different um, in different cultures and different places around the world. And so thanks so much for sending in the question, Dana, and we would love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Um, Phil, tell us a little bit about our guest today. Well, uh, you know, this is something I alluded to in the uh first episode of season two and it's something that we've been able to do that I've been wanting to do since the beginning of really even coming up with the idea for this podcast and that's to get a couple people who seemingly have differing views like you know on the opposite ends of the spectrum seemingly to a lot of people on certain issues and get them in the same room or in this case on a on the same call because one was in Australia and one's here in the United States so it would have been difficult to get them (laughs) in the same room but to get them really talking about these issues, to get them engaging the issues together so that it's not just simply listening to an old podcast and responding to it, but to be able to respond to and hash out and work through these complex issues together in a conversation. That's exactly what we've been able to do today. And these are actually two people who were from season one, um, two of the most uh, listened to, most downloaded episodes of season one. And it's also a couple people that a few different people out there have asked to hear them in a conversation together, hashing out these issues together. And so uh, with, without giving away anything that you're going to be hearing, I just want you to say you're in for a treat here because Todd Guckenberger and Rebecca Nepp um, were able to sit down and have a conversation together that I was able to just kind of moderate and let them have a conversation, ask a couple questions and get out of the way. So um, I encourage you again, as always, to engage this Listen deeply, take some notes, ask us some questions, give us some feedback, and hopefully we together can really work through these issues well. So without, without any more than that, uh, let's get to it. Todd and Rebecca, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having us, Phil. It's really great to be here. So I'm so excited for this conversation um, because it really embodies exactly what we want to do with this podcast. Uh, it, it encourages us to engage civil dialogue on the tough and messy issues that we're facing every day as we seek to love orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. And Todd and Rebecca, I know both of you are really wrestling with how we can really put the theories into practice uh, in the context of the realities we're facing every day. And I, I thank you too for agreeing to have this conversation because I know that specifically people have been talking to me about uh, getting the two of you on together to hear your thoughts and, and maybe to have you asking each other questions and just really engaging each other on some of the, some of the messy and tough issues that, that, we're, that we're dealing with. And one of those in particular that I really want you guys to just start talking about, which both of you talked about in your uh, in the podcast conversations that I had with you before. And, and on that note, if you haven't gone back and listened to those uh, for the audience out there, if you haven't gone back and listened to those conversations, they're episodes four and six. I strongly encourage you to do so because we're really picking up on those conversations um, today in, in, uh, in the dialogue we're going to be having with, with Todd and Rebecca. So as we move forward, I, I, I'd really love the two of you to just, uh, kind of piggyback on what you talked about in your respective um, interviews with me on the the topic of deinstitutionalization and really um, Rebecca in particular how you talked about it being much broader than simply just emptying out orphanages it's a whole lot more than that and then really take it to the to the next level with the two of you to be able to just have a conversation about really where you agree and and potentially disagree in in the context of what that might look like and how it plays out in day-to-day life. Rebecca, why don't you start off with that? 
Yeah, so I guess when we talk about deinstitutionalization, what we're really referring to is reforming the care system. So it's the entire system that um, supports children, that provides care where necessary for children who aren't able to live with their biological families or their families of origin. But it's also the system that preserves families and assists families from within the community. And deinstitutionalization is that process really of taking a system that's heavily leaning towards institutional-based services to a system that is more more holistic, that a system that is um, removing a lot of the resource and locating those resources back into communities and back into services that families can access without actually having to have gone through that separation event already. So it's really making sure that that full continuum of services are available for children and families right from before that there's separation right through to when children do need alternative um, family-based placements. And I know that uh, the some of the difficulty comes in is when to do that and how to do it in the context of communities and cultures and countries that the laws may not make it too easy to do also with churches and other ministries that are so vested in that and um, you know so really how are you making that determination uh, when you go into a community and how do you go about starting the process yeah so the often the, the initial steps are with the government um, because Worldwide, there's only two governments around the world that haven't already ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And a lot of care reform begins with that um, key instrument, which is a legal instrument. And when countries ratify that, that is a commitment to take those articles and principles and to embed them in their domestic legislation. And that can take time and that usually leads to the policy framework being developed around care reform and alternative care. And because that's already happened in just about every country, every country is somewhere on on that sort of process, on that journey towards reforming their care systems. So that's the initial step is what are the, what's the government doing? What is the government asking for? And how can we as churches, as Christian organisations, as civil society actors participate in that reform process based upon where the country's at um, and what the next steps are in, in terms of their plans? Yeah, Phil, you know, specific to that, one of the challenges that we have with that, and I agree with Rebecca, I mean, you know, we work predominantly in Mexico, Nigeria, India, and Haiti, but most of our uh, years have been spent in Mexico, and on the, the law books is is a form of family-based care they don't you know they don't want children to arrive to land in any kind of institution but the culture is so strong towards institutional care that it's it's been a real challenge so we've we found it necessary to work with the local government in that process um which is both working with uh you know the heads of governments, but also with the the technical teams to to try to implement other other alternatives on the on the continuum of care. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. I would 100% agree with what you just said. In, in most of the countries where we're working, and we're working predominantly in um, Southeast Asia and a little bit of a scattering in, in Africa, and um, we're finding pretty much the same thing that there's a big gap between, particularly what the ministerial level of governments are determining from a policy and a legislative level to what's actually happening at a culture and practice level with lower levels of the government. Um, and we're finding the same thing, that there's a lot that we need to do to engage with those different tiers of governments to to see that shift really take place. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I can't agree more. I think I think th- that probably is our greatest challenge when we when we look at in specifically looking at other alternatives. You know, one of the things I think I said in in the previous podcast was we, we don't look at it as a continuum as much as look at it as best alternatives for individual children, and that may be a point of difference. I'm not sure, but but because each country is so unique and each government is so unique we've found it that we've got to look okay what is possible right now how do we meet the best standards of care in this particular season wherever the government is or even the caretakers are or the children's home providers um, so it's, it's really challenging it's not that we don't want to to to, to move up on the spectrum or the continuum but it it's really we, we're looking at the practical level and going hey we have to actually make it the best that we can right now because culturally and government wise or even local church, we have so many challenges to, to confront it. We've got to make it the best as we the best we can for right now. Yeah. I think you point to a really, really important tension in this whole work around care reform, Todd, and that is that the, the what do we do to make sure that there's really 
high quality services available for children today as well as how do we keep moving on that journey towards making sure there's really well-balanced and well-rounded services for children in the long term and it's such a difficult line to walk and tension and we've got we've all got limited sets of resources we've all got limited sets of human resources that we can pour into this issue and that tension between do I invest it in bringing up the standards of care with what's already there or do I invest it in, in, in more in the transition and I think we actually need both um, I think we need people to do both and I think that's where the collaboration piece is really, really important um, and that's something that we within the, the Christian faith-based sector I think can really do well is collaborate well so that we can pull our resources and make sure that we are working towards the gaps in those um, in that spectrum or continuum of services being developed so that we're not always where we are today saying, well, we don't have foster care or we don't have sufficient family preservation services or we don't have kinship care services available, therefore all we have is still group homes or residential or, or more stronger interventions we need to be redirecting some of those resources to make sure those things are evolving and are emerging without compromising the care that is available and needed for children right now here today and it is a really difficult line to walk well and i, and I think that's a, a really valid point i think it's it's not one or the other it's both and it is resource heavy um but but i also think it's leadership heavy which i think is also a challenge because we need strong leaders i always say that that where we fail the most and this isn't necessarily across the board but where we have failure or have made mistakes is is what we call the tip of the spear it's the the, the head communicator the person who's working with the government the person who's working with the children's home director to try to begin the conversation of deinstitutionalization or begin the conversation of okay well maybe all these kids don't need to be here because they do have families and how do we do family reunification begin on the process and it makes it very very challenging um so I, I think collaboration part's critical. Um, you know, in Monterey, Mexico, we we worked with the local government to be, start the first foster care program, and it's it, we started that in 2012, and it or 2013 it became official, but we began the process in 2012. It's still a slow and growing process because there's not this general consensus that this is this is a better or a, a you know an advancement towards uh, the towards care for for children where they still see the institutional care as a as a you know it's a sufficient provider Mm, yeah, and I would say the same in a lot of the countries where we've worked. Um, we were part of developing the first foster care system in Cambodia under a local organisation called Children and Families, which was founded by Kathleen Jones. And we had, you know, really similar initial struggles. We started that organisation back in 2005. And um, this year we were able to place the 500th child in family-based care in that country. But when we started, we were up against a lot of um, resistance from, from all sectors. The government didn't yet have that policy framework around it or that wasn't too long after that that it came into place but most of the other organizations that were involved in care mainly residential care and group home style care they were highly resistant towards it and there was a lot of, of, of fear around putting these kids in care but um, we found that just persevering just keep on pushing through it grew you know initially the, it, was, it was like this it sort of grew flat and then it started growing quite incrementally and moving up and and as I said today you know we've, we've seen our 500th case placed in family-based care and we've just been able to um, receive quite a significant amount of funding to see that scaled up through the country to take some of the systems that have been developed and have them taken out at a national level so we're seeing really incremental changes now but it's it's a decade and a little bit later so some of these things just take well as you said a lot of investment of time of leadership and resource to, to really see those other types of care emerge and become accepted as, as mainstream systems that's that's awesome yeah i, I would say that's uh, mission critical um over time well, we we're our challenge. I don't, maybe you have had this challenge too. Is with the local governments because we it's a national process, but it's really f pushed through and facilitated locally. 
And because the local government changes every three to six years, you have a limited time to get momentum with either the local technical team, which is actually who you build the best bridge with. But then all of a sudden the heads of state or the mayor or the governor and, and traditionally in Mexico, the governor's wife is head of social services. And so then you have this disconnect when they leave office. And usually if it's a new party, they want to come in and clean house and not do it the way that the previous guy or, or woman did. And so it makes it very complicated for us to navigate. Um, not, not miserable because usually the technical team stays, um, uh. be- because they're not political appointees. They are, they're employees, um, of the government, but that takes some momentum also. So it's encouraging to know. I mean, that's awesome. Congratulations to the 500th child. The other thing that I think is that we've found is that with institutional care, which would, which describing it the way we do it, or that we come alongside it, we actually don't run children's homes, but is, you know, you have a traditional care uh, director of a home, they receive kids in Mexico now they're all appointed by the government or approved by the government to be in the home Um, and so we work with those directors to come alongside and and supplement basic needs or holistic needs in spiritual physical educational emotional social development we use we use our resources to pay for technical teams so social workers psychologists to build anything we can to support those children but the one of the bigger challenges we've seen too is that there's challenges on that level but even in the foster care process maybe rebecca you could speak into it as we found that there are challenges in that system too um because it's not quite as what I would say there is some dysfunction here in the United States where the foster care system has a negative connotation where, you know, families are doing it for the income or, you know, there's all kinds of positive and negatives, but some do it for great reasons and it's successful. But in Mexico in particular, we've worked mostly with, uh, church families and train them and which has been great but but working with the government kids being you know not necessarily being uh had spent time with the with the with the technical team you know just different challenges like that have you had challenges like that in your process yeah i mean i think one of the greatest challenges that i can identify with what you're speaking to and this wouldn't just be in cambodia this be in a lot of the countries that we work in is the gap between the higher level governments and the lower level and the changeover and seeing the policy and seeing the vision that might be coming from the top levels of government actually adopted and, and internalized at the lower levels of government where kids and families are in direct contact with local leaders who are often the gatekeepers of, of these children who will often then refer these children onto different care settings and so So, you know, when we're talking about care reform and we're talking about broadening out these systems, there's so many different things that have to be done. There's the technical component that you're speaking a lot about, Todd, and building that capacity within both government and civil society um, organisations so that we have the adequate technical competency to do this well and do it safely and to have really robust processes and monitor children's well-being in the family really effectively to make sure that they're safe and that they're thriving. Um, and then there's, you know, there's also that the training, that the adapting the, the, the viewpoint or the understanding of local government and local community leaders so that when they see a child in need, they're able to look at it a little bit differently rather than potentially having a default of saying, well, let's send that child straight to an institution. It's looking at are there other options for that child and really changing that process at that local level of how local leaders identify a child at risk and how they first respond to that child. And so in some countries like in Sri Lanka, We've done training right from um, right up the top with the, the Children's Commission and the, the Children's Commissioners across each state to the probation level, which is that sort of case manager level of child protection in the country, right down to the local government level, these local government leaders in every community who are that first point of contact for a child and a family at risk, and then down again to the children and the women's clubs that the government is partnering with organisations to run, who really are those hubs of informal social support that really strengthen and, and can keep those families um, in a position where they're accessing adequate support to stay together. And we've had to take this this multi-tiered approach of really training at every one of those levels, both the, the, the ideas behind child development and so forth that are feeding into why care reform takes place, as well as the technical competency and what are the different alternatives that we can present at each level so that the responses can really change and children can access a broader range of services that may be more appropriate to their specific needs. So it's really, it's, it's a really broad thing that has we have to engage with to see care 
systems reform um, and become more holistic. And we need different people to be positioned in all those different spaces and places to do their role so that we can actually see better systems developed in countries. Yeah, agreed. And simultaneously still meeting the kids' needs who are in current institutions. Um, Absolutely especially if it's a decade before we're going to get to our 500th child. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I, and, and that's, I think across the board is one of our, our greater concerns is we've got to continue to improve the standards of care with the kids we currently serve or come alongside while simultaneously trying to move towards some kind of social uh, change with, within the government or even society. Cause it's, it is a, it is a, a cultural shift also. Yeah, and I think that that's something, and we're going to shift gears here in a minute, but I think that that's a great place to kind of tie this up on this issue because there's so much more we could talk about. We could talk for hours on end. You both know that. We all know that. But I think one of the things you guys both hit on there at the end is that there are just some realities today, and there's different countries with different issues. And, and Todd, you spoke to the fact that some of, a lot, most of these countries in Latin America that I know about anyway – that I've researched, the government's the one placing them into a lot of the institutions. And so it's, it's, it's a whole lot of uh, advocacy at the government level that needs to happen to change their paradigm on how they see these children and how they make the determinations. And Rebecca, in your conversation with me um, on last season, you talked a lot about how do you, basically the gatekeeping, how do you know, how do you make those determinations that these children actually you know, can't be placed into a family somewhere, you know, at that moment. Who's making that determination? How is it made? And so much of that is done at the government level in so many countries. And so to your point, Todd, we need to take care of these children who the government has said need to be cared for outside of family for whatever reason, whether we agree with them or not. Right now they are in these positions. We need to know how we can love them really well. We need to create standards. We need to create um, the ability uh, in the in the workers that we have that can help them, can love them, as you both have said, to create as, mu- as close to family as we can for them as possible, while it's simultaneously working at the government levels to say, hey, how can we make these changes at the government levels to understand that you know, there may be a better way at the front end to keep these families together, to keep families strengthened, to keep um, children in families at the front end so that we don't have to have this huge need for um, the institutions or residential care or, you know, really we're using a lot of different terms for a lot of the same things. But is that, do you, do you both agree with that? Is that, is that, I hope I'm not putting words into your mouth. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, here's what I think the bottom line is. The bottom line is we need to have enough alternatives, at least in processed or developing resources for better standards of care, uh, whether it's on the continuum or or really individually focused with each child. So like, I think one of the things I brought up in, in the podcast interview that you, we did previously, Phil, was mm-hmm. I think sometimes we do a disservice by putting kids with extreme trauma with families that aren't prepared. And so, you know, we've done a, we go over the top in training, but in our foster care training, but, but even that is, it's such a, it's such a hardship to see a family ill-equipped to who's ill-equipped to take care of a child that has, has had, you know, has extreme trauma. And so the family doesn't know how to, to care for that child. And then there's actually more failure in that case. So I, I think there's so many entry points of, of, of really challenges, but I think the most important thing is look at the individual child. This is what we would say as an organization what are the what are the resources available to that child? How can we get the best resources available for that child? And then how do we move them toward down that or up that spectrum or continuum of care so that we can so that we can see that child long term be be successful? One of the things I really liked, uh, Rebecca, about what you said in your interview with Phil was was the the it's not just the short term for a child; it's the long term. What's it look like long term? Where's their support system long term? And, and I honestly, you know, will tell you it's that's not an easy it's easier said than done 
um, depending on where they're coming from, you know, what their situation is. You know, obviously we know a handful of the children most of us serve are more vulnerable than orphaned. Um, but that parent infrastructure or structure does not always exist. Um, but I do think there's opportunities for the local church and local community to come alongside those families um, for family, you know, to restore those families and to come alongside them to help them develop better long-term systems. But it's not, it's not, it's way easier said than done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I would just add to that, that I think, you know, coming back to what you asked, Phil, is is that what we're saying in your summary? I would say that um, one of the standards that we need to make sure we are implementing in residential type care settings in the interim and in the long term, because they are a part of the continuum. We're not talking about completely eradicating all forms of residential care. We're talking about putting them in perspective and into balance mm-hmm. and making sure there's the full range of services. But even as a standard of care that needs to be raised in institutions that exist today, for children who are there today, one of those must be about having care plans that do look at reintegration for those individual children. Um, th- those settings shouldn't be co- considered permanent just because, you know, we don't have the full continuum at place at time. We still need to be looking at each individual child's care plan and saying, what do we need to do to help this child potentially exit this care setting and be able to reintegrate back into society and back into a community setting? That is also a standard of care that needs to be implemented in institutions that exist today and may continue to exist in the long run as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the hope is we can, we can collaborate in our various contexts and determine what that looks like. Because, I mean, that's something that is, it is, it is very contextual, but it's also very difficult given different laws, different things. So for you to say in Cambodia that it works this way, well, that may or may not work in Mexico. But like you both have said, the principles will apply in both places. And if we can come together as organizations and with conversations like this to be able to say, you know, we do agree on more than we disagree on most likely. And so how can we come together to truly understand what that might look like? Um, Let's put plans together um, as, as, as in one unit, as one team. And, you know, let's do some kingdom building together. And so I I hope that these conversations are just, you know, stepping stones to that, um, that we can continue to, to, to further these conversations and that this will just be the start of one that will continue for a while and that hopefully, you know, ACCI and Back to Back and Providence and, you know, anybody else listening to this can get together in into some rooms together and just hash out some stuff together. And that's, that's really mm. the hope. On that note, okay. let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about um, short-term trips. There's been a lot of conversations about this. Uh, I know that, uh, Rebecca, you had uh, really a, a blog, blog blitz, I believe, was, was uh, what it may have been called, on just really the potential ills of, of trips and how, you know, you know are, they, are they really something that can be done well? And, and if so, what does that look like? And and Todd, I know that you and Back to Back have, um, you know, really have a lot of uh, trips and, and teams come and visit and, and you do a lot of training with them and do some, we talked a lot about um, trips on both of your interviews. And I just uh, love to hear uh, you both listen to each other's interviews. If you have any um, just questions for each other, uh, any potential things that may not have sat so well with, with you or also just um, maybe just Rebecca, what you learned from that blog blitz maybe you start there and then and then go from from there to discuss um the potential benefits cons and Mm. and really how trips may work in general but maybe not in the context of orphan care i know that's a broad question but Mm. i'd really just like to set it up for you guys to be able to have a forum to talk about it together so rebecca why don't you start off with maybe what you learned from that month and then and where we are today yeah, so for those of you who are not familiar with the Blogging Blitz, it was um, an initiative of Better Caring, Better Volunteering, Better Care, which is um, sort of a working group under um, BCN and SAVE. And it, it was really designed to to put a lot of this this issue of, of volunteering both in the, in the short-term team sort of sector as well as in the secular sort of sector of volunteerism into the limelight for a month and just really take a critical look at this issue of, you know, what, what happens when we send volunteers, whether that be volunteers who are on a holiday or short-term teams to work with vulnerable children in overseas countries, what are some of the ramifications of that practice and trying to create a dialogue around it really. And it was a, a cross-sector um, 
blogging blicks that took place in the travel sector. You know, we had blogs coming out from the Christian faith-based sector um, into the corporate social responsibility, education. It sort of was coming from a lot of different angles. It was in a a number of different languages. So it was a, a reasonably large sort of effort just to really throw some light on it. And um, it was, you know, it was really great in terms of getting conversation stirring and getting people reposting and retweeting, and it definitely created a lot of momentum and, and led to some really great outcomes, um, particularly within some of the travel sector and universities signing on to pledges to really improve their practices around that and be more aware of um, some of the potential pitfalls and harms that can be associated with sending volunteers to work with vulnerable children. It really was specifically looking at that issue of, is there a role for volunteers? within residential care centres specifically or within orphanages. And uh, the Blogging Blitz's perspective and, and BBBC's perspective on that is that volunteers, you know, have a really um, great contribu- contribution to make in the international development sector or, you know, overseas and, and, and in different programming and so forth. But we were really saying that that role should really not have involvement directly with children in residential care settings, particularly in caregiver roles, was really the focus of that. And that's definitely aligned with what ACC International's policy is. And for us, there's, you know, there's a number of reasons why you know, there's obviously a lot of the, the issues around engaging with children and who may have, um, you know, attachment issues or trauma and different things like that. And the, and the really the strong need for them to have consistency of care and not have those caregivers rotate in and out and as teams come in and out. There's obviously also the, the potential risk to those children's well-being, um, particularly if organisations don't have really robust screening practices around who is coming in and background checks and things like that and proper supervision. But I think for us, one of the real key issues is is that we know that it has created an industry it's created you know it's fueled this industry around volunteers coming into orphanages um, where it's quite lucrative and we know that even though sometimes we could send a volunteer to work in an orphanage in all the best ways who have been screened properly in a a, a residential care setting that's working to really high standards um, and that is utilizing volunteers in a really effective way but one of the things that we're concerned about is how it is perceived externally and we see this a lot in Cambodia and we see this a lot in Nepal and that is that other people are watching these teams come they're seeing that this is an income stream and so they are then creating orphanages so that they can attract these volunteers and they're removing children from family just to have them located in these orphanages so volunteers can come and interact with them and they can generate funding so for us one of the things is not just whether it's good for that set of children in that particular residential care centre but is it contributing more broadly to a system um, that is exploiting of the most vulnerable children in these countries and it's for that reason really that we've made a pretty strong stance um, for ACC International to say that we won't send volunteers to engage in residential care. We have programs that are under transition at the moment in our connected program that are still residential and are in that process of reintegrating children out and some of them may remain temporary emergency care shelters but um, for them they're long-term stakeholders can go and can visit and do their due diligence checks and those kinds of things, but we don't accept or facilitate any non-long-term stakeholder volunteers or teams to come into those residential care centres for that third reason about the, the industry that we are trying to to, um, to crack or trying to, to discourage, for want of a better word. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one thing I I think we probably do have some differences on this, but I uh, for sure we don't have any of our short-term teams serve in any capacity as a caretaker or caregiver. Um, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that or ever do that. I don't see any reason to do that. Um, we're really intentional about. Uh, you know, well, really, real quick, let me say, I've, I think it's an interesting perspective of not doing it because of how it's perceived and then what it tends to pro promote. And I think we've seen some of that in Haiti, uh, in particular, where where you'll see it, it'll, it'll be a opportunistic opportunity to begin an orphanage, so you have a stream of income, almost like a business. Um, uh, not quite sure. It's a reason not to come alongside and and, and work with with uh, children's homes, but um, but I see that as definitely. A, I can't disagree with you. It's it's probably obviously happening, but I'm not sure it's a good enough reason not to do it. Uh, for us, we've done a we've done a 
a very intentional job of of training our mission trip guests so that they're trauma competent aware and and so for example we we're really intentional about the whole attachment issue we don't want children running up to them and hugging them and being inappropriate and you know that clearly that's a that's a challenge internationally so we we actually do activities and train them on on you know an activity where you, where if a kid does run up to you they put their hand out as if they're going to shake their hand because they we don't want them to offer that kind of affection to a stranger and we don't want the children to offer that up to the strangers the other thing that we've done in particular to to prevent some of the challenges is we have staff that are full-time, are local, some are national, some are expats. Probably the majority of our staff are nationals, so, you know, Mexican or Nigerian or Haitian, et cetera. Um, and that that constant relationship, that, that consistency has built a bridge so that when we do have short-term teams come in who mostly do physical labor, um, construction, remodeling, building into the facility, um, that has a, that, that they do have interaction with kids though. So we do a, we do a, we do it, we do an activity we call play with purpose and there's always some kind of learning lesson or interaction that way. So, but uh, the, one of the things that I think is, is interesting about short-term missions and about, um, this, the, I call it more of a pendulum is that, is that there's these extreme dreams and the only time it's ever in balance is when the pendulum is going from the right side to the left side or the left side to the right side and it swings through the middle and so I've learned that it's really, really hard unless you're in that specific location with those specific relationships without standards uh, with with standards but if there are no standards that the only time you're you can really make a extreme judgment is if you're there you have you have they have the relationship you've interacted because i think i think there's so many strong opinions because there's one you know rebecca you said it well is that there are people who are doing it really wrong i mean and really hurting kids in the process i don't know um you know, so I think that's I think that's the unique thing about short term missions. I, you know, I think this is definitely a area we we work really diligently to be responsible, have an impact, and and extremely cautious about not hurting children at all. Um, and uh, and but we we do believe that it's a it's a it's a integral part both for the forward movement of the institutions and the, the relationship with the children. I think there is a healthy way to have a relationship with a child in a short-term way um, that's not um, that's not hurtful. Um, but, you know, once again, I, I agree with your points, but I, but I also think that there's other alternatives. Yeah, and I would agree with that too. I, I, I wouldn't say, and ACCI is definitely not saying that there's no way for short-term teams to be utilised. Um, I just think, as you're saying, there needs to be a lot of caution around how they're utilised and how they're prepared. And so for us, we have a short-term teams program. We've just released a short-term teams manual, which really specifically looks at the child protection in short-term teams issue. And it gives a lot of guidance of how we think teams can be used effectively. Um, and a lot of that looks at things like utilising teams to really engage in learning so that they can become really informed and strong advocates for these issues that children and families are facing in the country so that they can promote change both in that country and when they return to their home countries you know things like really preparing them to to pour into caregivers to pour into organizations to strengthen organizations so that they can continue on with their long-term roles in these children's lives i think there is a way for teams to be utilized and i deeply appreciate that with your ministry that teams are, are not taking on that caregiver role that those are uh, being kept for long-term relationships with the children I think that's really healthy um I guess for us, we're just looking at this this sort of bigger picture issue and also understanding that in, this, in the Australian church, one of the key things we're trying to do through our whole connected program is help the church re-understand and, and reframe the way they look at supporting vulnerable children overseas. And as you said, with that pendulum, for us in Australia, the pendulum is still too far over on the side of residential care. There's still too much of an association of uh, child at risk, residential care, and we need to bring that back into balance and part of bringing that back into balance for us is exposing these teams to other things, to other ways that children can be supported, to community-based efforts so that if they are not just going to, to institutions, it's not just reinforcing these assumptions that they already have, but it's exposing them to something broader so that they can actually think about engaging more broadly too with the way that they support vulnerable families and children. So we see teams as an incredibly important 
part of ministry and missions that really can educate people, that can give them um, new ways to engage, that can deepen their understanding of these issues. We think there are certain ways that they, they can actually contribute in a skills-based way. Um, but we also just see that there's a real tension and danger that we need to be aware of and um, responding to appropriately in terms of how teams are being utilized within residential care. Yeah, and I can't agree with you more. I think 99% of it is through educating the short-term trip participants, the churches themselves. Um, but I, yeah, I, I know I agree. I, I can't, I can't disagree with you. And I, and I think there are extremes and obviously in the United States with the churches here, some churches will, you know, like we did some at the uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans conference, I did some, some mentoring sessions and, and a couple of the quotes that were, you know, like somebody gave us an orphanage or, you know, th- those kind of things just make your skin crawl. And, and it's not that it's not and it's really the the sad thing is is none of it is out of ill will no one wants to set up no one wakes up and says i want to hurt kids internationally but the so i think the 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 hard part is how do you educate them individuals how do we continue to educate ourselves and learn and stop doing things that maybe we didn't think you know five years ago were harmful and now all of a sudden we're realizing hey this is the cumulative effect of this is is probably not a good thing and so we need to make some shifts or changes to make that happen so i think that's the position that people need to have I think for for us, one of the the best things that we've done, or the most intentional things we've done, is we we are extremely connected relationally with the children with the, with the children from our staff perspective, from our staff in country, with the children, with the with the director, with the caregivers, and so we we have a constant relationship, and that relationship allows for you know uh, a dynamic feedback, a constant conversation, a permission to engage or not engage and and to, and to get that interaction with with the actual children's home from our local staff national in the in country is mission critical so mm. yeah, that that to us is has been you know I always say we're local and we're international we're international because we're obviously based in the United States and we serve internationally but we're really local and that we have in country NGOs that are working directly with those partners um, whether it's even in a community so we work in a community center in Cancun and it's only to reinforce what we call strong families. We don't like the 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 ter- some of the terminology, so we came up with strong families. And so that family preservation term is great, but we we love the ability to build into families, come alongside them, resourcing um, job skills, and helping parents be better parents, and and coming alongside to the sustainability of that family. So, um, I th- you know, and I think there's ways to do that um, locally, being local. Yeah. Yeah, and I would just, you know, add to that that when when we have teams going to some of our connected projects that are still um, running residential care and in that transition process, those organisations are still able to accept short-term teams. And one of the things I love about the ways they've engaged these teams is they've often set up activities in the community. So whereas before they may have run English classes or games or sports programs within the residential care centres, they've taken them outside. They're running them out in the community now. And so they've got these teams who are still bringing those those same activities or those same skill sets, but they're bringing them now to the whole community. And those the kids from the residential care centres are often participating as well where it's appropriate but so are kids and families out in the community so it's doing a couple of things it's showing these teams that there's a different way to support children there's families around there's, there's this way we can do this it strengthens whole families as well as broadening out the impact that the teams can have by reaching a greater um, a greater community and, and a greater number of children and families as well so there's definitely ways we can engage them and every country is going to be different in what it looks like practically um, but I just think I would encourage anyone that's listening to just be aware that it's 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 complicated and we really need to think this stuff through really well we need to have great relationships locally like you're saying Todd we need to be listening and we just need to make sure that what we do is child-centric it's focusing on what is the best interest of the children and these families not what the best experience for the team is and if we keep that in perspective then I think we can find great ways to use short-term teams that's beneficial for everybody I agree. 
I do too, and I, I think that's a great place to stop. I think that the the idea of again, it's the collaboration, it's the coming together, it's the sharing ideas, it's that blogging blitz, it's the these conversations like this, it's coming and looking and seeing what the teams are doing, it's going in and really being honest with ourselves as churches to say, are we supporting something that is good, or are we just doing something because it's a check the box thing? We can go to a different country and and see kids. You know, are we going to places and doing things that are actually caught? You know. Um, that are actually causing harm to the kids because we want to have good pictures when we get home. You know, these, these just be really honest with ourselves. And right. there could be some tremendous, tremendous good when we truly go in and build deep, real, authentic relationships with these people that we're going in and don't see it as going in and doing work or quote unquote serving the less fortunate people. Yeah. No, we're going in to build relationships with fellow human beings, image bearers, people who have amazing gifts and talents. And yeah. One one thing I would love to plea is, and what I've found is because of the whole conversation around short-term teams, in many ways, what it does is it paralyzes people or individuals or churches to inactivity instead of, Hey, let's embrace this and let's do this well, Mm -hmm. or let's, let's do this differently and maybe learn from what we've done in the past that we shouldn't do instead of, well, we just won't do anything. Cause I, I think that is a disservice one to what God's called us to do. And how he's called us to, to, to serve children or to serve international communities. And so the paralyzing inactivity just drives me crazy mm-hmm. because people take a stance. And I really think the stance, honestly, is lack of information. It's it's not they hear something. They take a quote like One Helping Hurts, which I think is a great book and, and, a, and a great perspective. But then they they own it like they understand it all. And they're not diving into confronting it and saying, OK, what is the best way to do this? Is there a way to do this? And can we do this well? And. And I think that that is mission critical for anybody that's listening, in my opinion, because it, the inactivity doesn't help anybody. Absolutely. And, and it actually reminds me of a quote that, that kept coming to my mind during the conversation, both the deinstitutionalization and the short term trips conversation is one. It was Kevin Kelly, a Wired magazine. He said it was in the context of technology, but it applies here just as much. And he says, just because there's some technology out there that is bad doesn't mean we stop trying to have technology. Of course, that's not the answer. The answer is to make the technology better. The answer is to engage it and to make these things good and better. And I think the same thing applies to these short-term trips. The same thing applies to, you know, all this orphan care work that we're doing. You know, just because there's some bad stuff doesn't mean you stop doing it. Um, You need to come in and engage it and to say, how can we do this better? How can we improve upon what we're doing? How can we continually engage it and, and use the real studies, use the real information, use the real people? that we are engaging with to say, how can we do it better continually? So hopefully we'll continue that conversation together. Um, you mentioned when helping hurts, Todd, I, I want to just ask uh, you guys for a resource um, that, you know, we've, we talked about books and things you've been reading and podcast um, that you listen to. Um, but is there one book uh, that you would have kind of as your go-to and if it's when helping hurts, that's okay. But is there a one book that you'd have a, as a go-to or, or one pool of resources and, Rebecca, on that note, can you give us the, uh, in your answer, can you give us the, where we can go find the blogging or the blogs that were posted in, in May, I believe. Um, and just give us a resource that we can go to for short-term trips um, or advice on any of this work, really, uh, that you guys just think is, is a must-read. Um, my, my answer, <laughs> sorry, sorry, we're, it's a little hard because we're all in different places in the world. Um, my answer probably is not specific to orphan care. I think there's a ton of information about what I would say, and Rebecca said it best, about the child. Because if that's our bullseye, then we need to continue to focus on that. And we would say, in our world, we would say child development. So, you know, anything that Karen Purvis has, or we actually hired and and work with Jane Jane Schooler and her husband, and their their work on trauma-competent care, and the emphasis there is incredible. So, uh, there's a handful of resources there by both those authors. But what I think our greatest challenge is internationally is leadership. And so my, my 
my favorite resources are uh, any book or resource that helps people grow in their leadership because I think that's that's where we have hit the biggest um, roadblocks. So we work with a national director of an orphanage or a children's home, and our, our issue is not, hey, can we have a conversation about standards of care or, how, hey, can we have a conversation about reunification? It's, it, it's paralyzed or gets stopped because of a lack of leadership development. And that's not a criticism of a culture. It's actually a criticism of an individual. And so what I think internationally needs to grow along with the awareness of best standards of care and best practices with, with, with kids that have had trauma is we need to continue to build into the, the international cultures we serve and work with them alongside them. It's not a top down, it's alongside in helping develop leadership skills. And I think those leadership skills are our mission critical. And so I have a few favorite authors. I'm actually reading a book right now called Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette. And it's basically about empowerment and, and empowering other leaders or people you work with. Uh, anything by Patrick Lencioni, I think The Advantage is one of the best books ever written for anybody that's running an organization. Um, and the, there's just some mission critical things. And, and that's really part of the mission critical. Uh, obviously, the whole standards of care and the depth is really important. But and maybe that's a different answer than you wanted, but um, that, that to me, I think, is our biggest roadblock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I would say um, the, it's one of the things that I think I've been, you know, reading and maybe not recently, but just over a long period of time is is books that really look at issues of, um, of justice versus charity. And I think it's a really important distinction that we need to, to be aware of and be able to make because a lot of the way we respond to children in, in adversity and, and to, to vulnerable communities overseas is really a charity response. And I think I would really love to see the church go deeper and look at the justice framework a little bit more intentionally. So, you know, books like um, Pursuing Justice or Scandalous Obligation that really look at what is that biblical framework of justice and how can we apply the, that framework to this issue of caring for vulnerable children and providing support for vulnerable families in ways that really looks at root causes, in ways that looks at um, identifying them and, and seeing them, envisioning them as rights holders um, versus objects of charity so that we really start to respond to those deeper level issues and seek interventions that overcome issues for these families rather than continue to implement sort of band-aid approaches to the issues that they're facing. So I, I would encourage people to to look at materials or resources that look at that issue of justice, look at that issue of um, root causes and, and how do we respond to the root causes of child vulnerability in the communities we're working with. Um, I think from a, a more technical perspective for people who are wanting more, more, more technical articles to read around the issue of care reform or caring for children appropriately, I think one of the people that I've been reading lately that um, has really influenced me is Dr. Andy Bilson and he's um, he's a professor from from the UK and he writes some fantastic articles that really look at shifting the way we look at social work from a forensic social work perspective to a social development perspective and he's really challenged some of my thinking um, and had the privilege of meeting him earlier this year and um, so I'd really encourage people to look at some of his articles and he's recently been doing some studies longitudinal studies in child protection systems and coming up with some very, very fascinating findings that I think are really relevant worldwide. Um, and in terms of the blogging blitz, people can go and find information on that blogging bit blitz on the Better Care Network website, which is bettercarenetwork.org. And then if you go to the Better Volunteering Better Care page on the Better Care Network site, you can find all the information about the Better Volunteering and Better Care materials, as well as information on the on the blogging blitz and the uh, hashtag that I believe was used for that blogging blitz. If you're looking for specific blogs and articles, was Stop Orphan Trips. Well, thank you both so much for this. I know, um, as as usual, I learned a ton, and I just want to uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for engaging these tough questions together, and for doing it in a, an incredibly civil way that uh, I think shows a tremendous amount of respect for each other, which is hopefully what we can continue doing um, through this podcast and through everything that we do in this work. My our pleasure, my pleasure, Rebecca. It was great getting to know you a little better, and I I firmly believe that we need we're not in competition with each other we need to continue to collaborate together so appreciate it absolutely it's been also my pleasure meeting you and having this conversation and thank you phil for hosting it and I, i hope it's one of many 
Well, that was a whole lot of fun to just sit back and listen to two really smart people um, have a conversation about something that they are super passionate about and really have a civil dialogue about things that, you know, are really at the core of what they're working on, what they believe and uh, what they're doing every day of their life. And so I hope you really learned as much as I did from their conversation and were encouraged by the way that they respect each other. Um, and that really was the first time that they've had a conversation together, um, and particularly about, about these things. So Kelly, what, what were your thoughts on that, on that, uh, conversation with Rebecca and, and Todd? I think so many times we want to focus on the differences maybe that we have between ourselves and others. And I think this was a great example of a conversation where, you saw the things they had in common. And for me, I think it's just stepping back and saying most people who are in this this field or in this work have a heart uh, for for seeing children heal and be made whole and have the best possible um, environment in which to do that. And so. I think behind maybe some of the different theories and practices, I think you see the heart. And I think when you have people like Rebecca and Todd leading an organization, I think the outcomes for these kids are going to be positive in both situations. Um, And so I guess that's probably what stood out to me. What about you, Phil? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I've said so many times, um, I think most of us agree on a whole lot more than we disagree on. And that's just what really shined through there with, with them talking about deinstitutionalization, talking about uh, short-term missions. I mean, just really, really complex issues, really, really difficult issues to work through all the details on. And, and you know, yeah, they don't agree on everything and all the little bits and pieces of everything. But the big picture stuff, I think we see that they, they do agree on it. And so many of the differences as typically happens in what I've seen in my experience and, you know, in conversations I've had myself, the typically the differences and the real like glaring differences come up in the, and they they stem from the, some one person talking about theory and coming at it from a theoretical side and the other person really coming at it from a practical day to day dealing with these issues side. And so they're just saying, Hey, you just, you and the theory don't understand this practice. You don't understand the realities that I face every day. And you're coming in from your ivory tower and you're saying this, that, and the other thing. And the person on the, uh, in the theory says, yeah, but if you don't have this ideal, if you don't have this long-term perspective, you, you know, everything you do on a day-to-day basis will potentially be going down the wrong road, the wrong road. And so I really saw that play out with Todd and Rebecca. I, I saw something that they were really trying to work through. And as they worked through, it to, worked through it together, most of the time, I'd say, they came out of it saying, you know what? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, Todd said that several times. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, we're, we're on the same page. And then what a lot of people didn't hear that I was able to hear, which was so cool, is afterwards, after the conversation, um, when, we, when we cut it all off um, and stopped recording, Todd and Rebecca, you know, and myself are talking about ways that we can work together and actually collaborate on projects in the future, which was so cool. Uh, Todd and Rebecca are saying, where do we work together? Oh, we work, we both work in India. So is there a way we could maybe figure out a project that we can actually come together and work on stuff together? And that's really at the end of the day, what we're hoping to do with this podcast, what we're hoping to do with our conversations with each other and what will really enable us to start making a true dent in this orphan crisis that we're all um, passionately fighting to alleviate and hopefully, you know, just really bring the right love and families to these kids. And so as, um, as we finish talking about that and talking about Todd and Rebecca and just all the wisdom that we got out of that interview, we have a thoughts from the field segment today that, that fits right into it. And, um, Dan Kruver, who is the uh, president and founder of Together for Adoption. He, they put on conferences and do a lot of other great stuff um, to, to further the best practices in orphan care movement. But uh, Dan, uh, again, I was able to ask him the, the question that I asked a few different people. What is the, the, the biggest issue in your mind that we're facing today in orphan care and how can we address it? And so here was his response. 
I'm Dan Kruver with Together for Adoption. I think one of the largest issues that we are facing as a movement is not understanding the complexity of it. And when you don't understand the complexity of it, you don't have a game plan or a methodology to work through it, then it becomes uh, exponentially difficult uh, to find solutions that actually work. And so what we need to do is work to break down the complexity into into bite-sized pieces and attack one at a time and then look at how they all link together and then to form a holistic um, picture of how we can actually address those. Well, Dan really put a cap on kind of the things that we've been talking about today and just the fact that this these issues are complex and the best that we can do is to really just break it down and to really address things from an individual broken down thing. And we're all kind of aiming for uh, just to be a part of a bigger work and to be a part of collaborating and hearing from each other and working together. So our next and final segment is Kelly and Phil recommend. And so Phil, you were going to recommend a book. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, uh, it's it's a book that actually um, will help us to work cross culturally a whole lot better, and it's it's a book that Brian Loritz uh, was was able to put together, and and it's uh, written in a fable form, which are always great. I love those type of books. Um, Patrick Lencioni has kind of made a living doing that, and Brian does this in uh, in a beautiful way uh, with a book called. Uh, right color, wrong culture. And it really is written in the context of how a church can become a multi-ethnic church and what that takes. But it really speaks um, volumes to us working cross-culturally in any setting. Um, it's really where that book is, is written in the sense of a, of a racial cross, you know, to bring in, um, make it a multi-ethnic church uh, in the U.S. and in the context of a U.S. But again, it speaks to all the work that we're doing in different cultures. And it also speaks to a lot of the issues we're dealing with right, you know, today in the United States and other, you know, racial divides in other, in other countries. Um, I was just watching a, a documentary on the city of God. It was 10 years after the, the movie was made in Brazil and the race issues are just, you know, they're, they're, they're massive in Brazil as well. And that's just something I think that unfortunately we face the prejudices, the discrimination, the different things that are going on in the world that are so real that we need to understand each other um, before we can really work together. And I think that that is something that this book uh, talks about. It talks about getting into the messinesses of it to face a lot of the prejudices we have, to understand them, to understand the people that we're working with. Um, across all um, different potential divides. And so I strongly recommend the book. And, and there's actually another book that I'm listening to in the midst of listening to right now, and it's called The Invisible Man that Brian recommended in there. And I'm only a little bit into it, but I know that Brian um, implicitly recommended it in that in in the other book, and it's by Ralph Ellison. It was written in 1951 or 52. And so another book that if these issues are something that are, are on your heart, which I imagine they are on a lot of people out there, um, to take a look at these books to really start understanding um, a little bit so that we can work together that much better. We will definitely be reading that in our family for sure. And we just want to thank you for joining us today and for um, entering into these difficult conversations with us. And we hope that you gained something for from the things that you heard. We would ask that you maybe go onto Facebook and, and like our page and maybe even send in a question that you might have. And again, thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. <laughs>